Hey everybody, this is Basil, and that bird back there is Gons. And we just wanted, before we... Okay. Before we get into this episode, we just wanted to take a moment and send sincere thank yous to all of our listeners for making 2014 a great year. Making all the years a great year, but 2014 especially great because of you guys. Um, For everybody who's gotten in touch with us via the emails and the Facebooks and the Twitters, we're just so happy to be connected with you now. And for those of you who have stepped out and helped support the podcast with a gift, we are so, so grateful, both Gans and I. It's because of you guys that we're able to keep doing this. I mean, we're coming on, we're working on three years now. We're, we're in our about third to hit year. Three years, yeah. It's yeah, crazy. we're working on our third year. And so we are just so, so grateful for everybody listening to this right now. And um, we hope to continue to earn your guys' support because you got a lot of choices in life. And we're just so touched that you choose Canary Cry Radio. <laughs> Sorry. Do you agree, Gons? Yes. Okay. Completely, one hundred percent. Okay, good. So that's enough of that sappy stuff. Let's actually get into the episode, maybe. Let's episode it up. You're listening to Canary Cry Radio. Listen closely as Jesus explains that parable. What is this wicked seed that was planted? Not a parable. But the straight fact, 37, he answered and he said unto them, He that soweth the good seed is the Son of Man, meaning the Son of God, Almighty God, that Holy Spirit that moved upon the field, the earth. Verse 38, the field is the world. The good seed are the children of the kingdom. That's what the kingdom is about. Remember again, what does kingdom mean? The king and his dominion. Almighty God and His children, and these children, the good seed, are His children, those that He created. But the tares are the children of the wicked one. Now, wait a minute. We don't believe in the Satan seed doctrine. We don't believe that there's any children on this earth other than what God put here. Anybody that would teach the serpent seed certainly doesn't know what they're talking about, for my Sunday school teacher told me that Eve partook of an apple. You know, Jesus is not a liar. He stated the wicked one sowed the seed. The seed in the Greek are children. Jesus says these are the children of the kingdom. The bad children are of the wicked one. Let's see if Jesus might make it a little clearer for us in verse 39. The enemy, that's this wicked one, that sowed them is the devil. Here's Basil and Gons. Hey everybody and welcome to Canary Cry Radio. My name's Basil. And this is Gons. Welcome to episode number 82. 82. Our guest today runs FallenAngels.tv. He has a YouTube channel called Endeavor Freedom, and he's also the author of several books, including A Different Way of Being, Lucifer, Father of Cain, Awaken to the New World Order, Sons of God, and his most recent release, Skyfall, Angel of Destiny. 
we would like to welcome Zen Garcia to the show. Zen, how you doing, buddy? Very well, brothers, and I really appreciate the opportunity to speak about all these different topics. I think that a lot of people are being awakened to similar discernment, and so they're seeking answers or at least uh, somewhat guidance on some of these issues. Absolutely. I think we're all in the same boat there. So now Gans heard about you quite a while ago when he was getting into his studies, but I'm sure there's a lot of people out there who may not have heard of you or read your books or anything like that. So just for the, the newbies, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, well, I was the big thing about my life, the, the largest thing recently is I was in, involved in an accident when I was 24 years old, and I became paralyzed at that time, which gave me a chance to review my life and my position, my perspective, everything, and also gave me the time to um, effort going back into the scriptures and rereading them uh, with new light and new perspective, and uh, and also to study all the extra-biblical, extra-canonical texts and all the Sumerian teachings, everything, basically everything I could find and get my hands on. And, and then having done so, I felt like I was a more or less an, an investigator in trying to piece together the underlying truth of all things and how things parallel and connect and like trying to fill in a jigsaw puzzle of truth. And so that's the, the largest thing as far as what led me to be able to do the research that I've done and to have time to do the studies, whereas I know a lot of people are busy in their efforts and just trying to support their kids and feed their families and, mm-hmm. you know, um, run the whole gamut of living in the matrix and making money and right. paying bills and that kind of thing. And, and so I, I was alleviated somewhat of that burden and given the uh, opportunity to do what I do. And, and uh, having studied a lot of things, of course, I've been led to uh, discernment that is not conventional, to say the least, and, and definitely not mainstream. And the things that I share as far as the discernment that I've been led to are not um, very well received and certainly not spoken of or taught in mainstream churches by pastors, preachers, ministers, you know, people of authority that others go to to get um, guidance on and direction on what the gospel says and right. how to interpret this or that. And, and what I find is that most people have never even read just the Old and the New Testament, much less all of this other material. And having not done so for themselves and only relying on what their pastor speaks about in the two-hour sermon on Sunday, they know very little of what the real gospel is about and what it details and what it talks about, much less the secrets are, that are therein contained. Um, and so I find that the people that come to my research and that listen to my shows and that read my books have been seekers of truth for a very long time. In fact, the the whole motto of my website, fallenangels.tv, is a seeker of lost paradise may seem a fool to those that have never sought the other worlds. 
And it holds so very true because most people have not done their homework. They have not done their research. They're not very advanced seekers. And those that are, are led away from what is taught in Sunday schools and what most people believe. Yeah, that's so true. And that's a, that's a good point that you bring up about, you know, there's, there's people who are uh, just sitting, sitting in church and there's people who do do the reading and then there's sort of like some more advanced seekers who really get into it. Um, so, so you say that you didn't, weren't into any of this, didn't do any research before the accident or did the... Oh, no, no. I, I was fully involved in, you know, what, but more new age teachings, you right. know, because when I, I'm, I'm 43 now, but when I uh, reached my teens, that's when the whole new age thing started happening. Uh, there was all this alignment in the stars, all the planets aligned on one side of the sun in a straight line. And, and then all this new age material started flooding into uh, the conscious of the collective and that was the thing that was, you know, the fad of the day. And so everybody got involved. That's also when Genesis uh, revisited Zacharias uh, Sitchin's work, became available to the public. Books like Bringers of the Dawn by Barbara Marciniak, Last Cry, you know, things of that nature. Mm -hmm. And so I read all of that first and studied a lot of that material. I was involved in shamanism. I did sweat lodges. I, you know, was walking that kind of a path. Um, I studied massage. I was a, a martial artist and a snowboarder on the side. And and that was the thing that I did. I traveled across America, went to different national parks. I did sweat lodges wherever I could. And that was kind of my uh, religion and spirituality. And I absolutely knew the creator, the great spirit, great mystery, whatever you want to call him, the father, Yahweh, Yahuwah, you know, there's so many names for them, but basically the same thing. But I did not know the son, nor the specifics of what he had done, nor the prophecies that were connected to his coming into the flesh and incarnation as God himself here upon the earth. And, you know, dying on the cross, defeating death, and um, giving us a chance for redemption, being the example, the way, the truth, and the light, offering us uh, salvation, grace, all those things until after um, my accident. Mm. Mm. And then how did that lead, how did that come about? I mean, you just had the time on your hands and went for it, or was there some sort of experience that um, gave you a push towards Jesus, if you will, or... Uh, well, no, I just um, was a student of wisdom texts and had been researching all my life. And uh, that was one of the things that I had mostly neglected was hmm. uh, the study of the Bible. And the reason being is because um, my focus, you know, prior was upon all of the um, other material that was then available. So, so easily, and that was distracting my attention. But it was good for me to go through that because I learned the other side of, of things. But afterwards, I became interested in the, like so many people do, uh, Genesis 6 and the fallen angels and the sons of God and uh, the you know birth of giants upon the planet. And that research really inspired me to read all of the 
other texts as well as the Old and the New Testament. And I used to also, I bought the um, collection of the King James Version of the Bible on audio CD. And I would mm. listen, I put it on my MP3 player, and I would listen to it all day, every day, going through it all, you know, four or five times in every chapter, every verse, all of that. And, um, and then I started to see certain things that, you know, again, most people don't, um, at least they don't uh, appeal to it, at, like the Lucifer father of Cain, that kind of thing kept presenting itself to me, and I realized that not a lot of people knew about it, certainly not a lot of people were talking about it, and I had such a vast amount of material in support of it, uh, I decided to write a book on it, and then afterwards I uh, presented it to all the, what was then, you know, the alternative uh, Christian thought leaders, those that had their own um, radio shows, and I'm, I'm not going to say any names, but I received a lot of angst and a lot of animosity uh, simply because of the publication of this book. And yes. I realized then that a lot of people were not interested in truth, but they were interested in what they had been taught, what they had um, assimilated as truth, and the belief systems that they had been uh, brought up in and that they against all challenge will you know will support even if it and they never even will open themselves to new possibility and so right um and so that's when i realized that you know the the things that i was being led to were certainly not um very well received yeah and you wrote your first book when Oh, I wrote my first book when I was um, 22 years old. I published it when I was 22, but I had been writing since I was 16 years old. And, oh, okay. Um, and that book is called Look Somewhere Different, and it's not available. I myself only have one copy of it. Um, and then my second book, I was writing in the process of my travels because I traveled all over the, the country and... Um, had spent a lot of time in all the various national parks all over, even out there in California, because like 90% of the national parks are on the West Coast. But um, And then it was during that time that I was writing my second book that I was involved in this accident. And then there was a hiatus for about 15 months where I was recovering from the devastation of that whole transition into disability. And then after that, I finished that book, released it. It was published in 1996, I believe. Um, and then after that, it was a, a long period of time uh, for me to finish another book because uh, I was doing a lot of this research. And then 2004, I published A Different Way of Being. And then after that, my focus came to be on uh, Christian biblical text and extra biblical, extra canonical text, the Old and the New Testament, the Pseudepigrapha, Apocrypha, the Nagamati Codices, all this body of work. And, um, and then, you know, that's when I, I had all this information about Cain not being the son of Adam uh, come to light. And, you know, I know we want, you, you'll want to talk about that. Um, and uh, it's an interesting topic, to say the least. But it kept 
presenting itself to me everywhere in all the different texts that I was reading, even like books like the Colburn Bible, uh, the Aramaic Targums, and they all confirmed this as possibility. And so I published it, released it, and you know offered it up to the world and uh, sent copies out to a lot of these radio hosts. And some received me and gave me opportunity, and some. Uh, I would say most most did not. Huh. That's very interesting. Yeah, and we will definitely get into that. Um, very cool. Well, I mean, what are you? How are you doing over there, Guns? I'm good. Okay, <laughs> soaking it in. Um, soaking it in. Yeah. Let, let's let's jump into some of that. You know, the stuff you wrote about in Lucifer, Father of Cain. When I first heard about this, I was sort of confused because, you know, I I had approached this a lot of the subject matter through. The Bible, and you know, based on my readings of Scripture in Genesis four one, you know, it says Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bare Cain, and she said, "I have gotten a man from the Lord." And you know, in recent years or recent whatever, a couple years or so, the part where it says, "I have gotten a man from the Lord," intrigued me because I thought, well, you know, what does that mean? Because if Adam knew his wife Eve. And what was conceived was Cain. What does the, I have gotten a man from the Lord, what does that represent? And my sort of understanding of it was that Eve thought that Cain was the promised Messiah based on, you know, Genesis 3.15 with the, the proto-Evangelion. And so that's, that's kind of where I'm at with it. But can you sort of outline where your perspective comes from? And, and why your theory is different from that, or different, at least in terms of Cain not being the son of Adam, but actually the result of the serpent or Lucifer um, mating or, or you know, raping Eve, so to speak. Yeah, uh, and this is a very interesting topic. Um, uh, it comes from a lot of the study that I did, and then many, again, these extra-biblical texts, but the thing that swayed me the most on this particular topic is my study of Matthew chapter 13, the parable of the sower, the parable of the wheat and the tares, and also the things that I read in what is called the Targums, which are, um, if I don't know if you've heard of them, but they're the Aramaic translations of the original Hebrew Torah. Right. And, and when you study these, um, you get a very different perspective on what is spoken of in the King James Version as far as Genesis, uh, Genesis 4.1 and also Genesis 3.15 because uh, the Targums add some information and detail some of the things uh, as to why this the passage, and Adam knew Eve, his wife, she conceived, bear Cain, said, I have gotten a man from the Lord, is actually not referencing Adam as the father of Cain. And if you, and I'll read the passages from the Targums, but first, um, I just want to comment on the parable of the sower in the first part of Matthew chapter 13, where, the, where Christ is speaking about the garden, and he gives an account of the field, which represents the world. He speaks about the tares, and he says, and the angels um, ask him, from whence do the tares come from? And he says, an enemy has done this. 
And, and he says that the enemy sowed the tares. And then they ask him, um, should we root them up? But he says, no, let both grow until the time of the end. And then, you know, in the parable of the wheat and the tares, he names the enemy as the devil, and he says that the devil is the father of the tares. And he says that in the end, when I send my angels out as the reapers, they will gather the tares for burning and gather the wheat for the barn. And this all aligns with what Genesis 3.15 is speaking about when it talks about um, the curses that were levied upon Adam and Eve and the serpent. And he tells, speaking to the serpent, he says, I'm going to put enmity between the your seed and her seed, meaning Eve's seed. And um, in the Targums, it also cites not just um, the, his seed and her seed, but thy sons and her sons. And so we'll go back to Genesis 4.1 because this is the, the point of contention for most people that study the King James Version of the Bible and do not understand exactly what this particular passage is referencing because the most important part is the semicolon in this passage. Because if you look up the definition of the semicolon, you'll see that it denotes separation and individualized thought between the parts. And so, when you read the Targums, and I'm going to reference to the Palestinian and the Aramaic Targum, uh, the Palestinian Targum says this for Genesis 4.1, And Adam knew his wife Hava, that's the um, Hebrew name for Eve, who had desired the angel, semicolon, and she conceived and bare Cain, semicolon, and she said, I have acquired a man, the angel of the Lord, and she added to bear from her husband, Adam, his twin, even Abel. And so, looking at the separation where in the King James Version of the Bible it says, and Adam knew Eve, his wife, and then you have the semicolon in the separation. The second part, she conceived and bare Cain and said, I've gotten a man from the Lord. The extra detail in the Palestinian Targum, which, you know, these go back to the first century CE, right when the people came back from exile in Babylon. Uh, they, the 70 years that they spent there, they lost their ability to dialogue in Hebrew. Hebrew was not the vernacular of the day. Aramaic was. And so they assimilated the language of that day, which was Aramaic. And when they came back to the Holy Land and the temple was rebuilt and worship was reinstituted, when they went in for worship and, you know, to be present during these services, um, the priesthood would read the Hebrew Torah but the people couldn't understand it, and so they then would have to interpret the Hebrew into Aramaic, and then uh, eventually, after doing that so much, an official translation um, came about, which Targum means translation, and so these Aramaic Targums go all the way back to the first century CE, right after their return you know, back into the Holy Land and right after the temple was rebuilt and worship was reinstituted. So these are very old translations of the original Hebrew Torah. And so, um, again, they say, And Adam knew his wife Hava, 
who had desired the angel. And so you have to ask yourself, well, who? what is it saying when it speaks about who had desired the angel? What angel is being referenced here? And then you see the next part, and she conceived and bare Cain. Well, and Adam knew his wife Hava is not the result of, and she conceived and bare Cain. But her desiring the angel is the repercussions and consequence of her conceiving and bearing Cain. And then the next part, she said, I have acquired a man, the angel of the Lord. Well, the angel of the Lord was Lucifer, or in this case, Satan, the adversary, who was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, he's also referenced as the Nakash, the shining one. And then the next part, and she added to bear from her husband, Adam, his twin, even Abel. And so in the fullness of Genesis 4.1, we have Cain being the result of her having desired the angel. The second twin that was born was Abel. And that's why we have the enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, because Cain was not a child of Adam. And this is also confirmed uh, by Paul in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, which I'll read that at some point too. But um, if you read the other Targum, the Aramaic Targum, Adam knew his wife Eve, who was pregnant by the angel Samael. In the Targums, Samael is the serpent in Genesis chapter 3, the Nakash. And then, and she conceived and bare Cain. And he was like the heavenly beings and not like the earthly beings. And she said, I have acquired a man, the angel of the Lord. And again, so she references that she require, acquires a man from an angel of the Lord, which in this case is named Samael. And Samael is also the name of the angel of death, which is also Satan, the adversary, or Lucifer, the fallen cherub. Wow. Right. That's some very interesting stuff. And, and I think a big part of it for me is I necessarily haven't looked into the Targum that much. And I could see how somebody... Uh, not knowing about the Targum or not knowing how to feel about, you know, whatever, the legitimacy of it or, you know, what it is. Do you have like a little bit of an explanation on exactly what the Targum is or are? Or I know you mentioned it before, but just to reiterate. Yeah, I actually um, have a, um, well, I wrote, you know, I released them myself. And so I published because I happen to have a copy a full copy of both the Aramaic and the Palestinian Targum. So I published them. But basically, it's what I talked about. They're the uh, translations of the original Hebrew Torah from the, you know, when the people arrived back into the land and worship was reinstituted. They could not understand Hebrew anymore. It became um, a, a scholarly class or a priestly language. Uh -huh. um, and then so the Targum, which means translation, they had to translate the Hebrew Torah, the original five books, because that's what the Targums are. There's, there are other translations of other, but those came way later. Right. The most um, ancient and the most authorized and the most well-respected 
are the Aramaic and the Palestinian Targums because not only are they the oldest, but they go back to the first century CE to, you know, right when the people returned back Got from, it. you know, from this exile. And Aramaic was the vernacular of the day there in the Middle East. And so that's why they are the oldest, because they were the first authorized translations of what was the Hebrew Torah. Got it. And when you say you publish them, you, you publish translations of them? or Yeah, the, the English translations of the um, Palestinian and Aramaic Targums. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Got now, it. To my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, but our... And I'm not quite sure about the Aramaic, but at least the Palestinian Targum, isn't it sort of a collection of different fragments that were found from the first century? And it's not like a complete, you know, it's not like one complete document that was put together, if I'm not mistaken. No, it's a complete document. Oh, is it? Yeah. Okay. There Uh, are other Targums that are um, fragments, but they're mostly of older books of you know also of the old testament like there's targums for the psalms targums for daniel uh other individualized books of the old testament but the oldest targums the ones that i'm referencing only cover the first five books the official hebrew torah okay Right. Well, it's 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 very interesting theory, and it, it does speak a lot to the sort of uh, you know corrupting of the image sort of narrative that is told quite a bit in this sort of fringy area. Now, you've obviously had a lot of criticism for it. What are oh, some gosh. of the things that people say? I mean, my thing is, I mean, I. Uh, I don't think it's necessarily a, a salvation issue as as do is is a popular um way to say let's agree to disagree. Um but what have people, you know, what have been some of the criticisms and what what's been some of their uh evidence that they've come against you with or you know things like that. Well, Genesis 4:1 is the only evidence that they really present. And again, you know, as I just explained to you about that, uh, they don't understand what they're speaking about as far as Genesis 4.1. Because also, the other thing, just to mention um, the official canon, the King James Version uh, of the canon, if you look at Genesis 4.1 and you realize that this passage is actually referencing Cain as a son of the serpent, the Nakash, then you understand why you find it at in the very beginning of Genesis 4.1, because Genesis 4 is about the lineage of Cain. And you actually find Genesis 5 speaking about the sons of Adam, beginning with Seth, because Abel was murdered by his half-brother Cain. Mm-hmm. And if you go to, again, the... Genesis 3.15, and also what Christ is speaking about as the parable of the sower and the parable of the wheat and the tares, right. uh, then you'll understand why it is that it is found in Genesis 4.1, because mm. these two lineages are kept separate. And then another thing, if you go to Luke chapter 3, verse 23 through 35, therein you find the lineage of Christ mentioned going all the way back to Adam as the son of God. And then it, it skips over Cain. Cain is not included in his lineage. And it goes to Seth because Abel was murdered and Cain was not a son of Adam. And so that's another hmm. confirmation 
of what I'm talking about. So the people that come against me as far as not believing this as being scriptural uh, don't understand the, the Bible as they read it. And they don't understand that this war between these bloodlines and this seed line goes all the way through the Old Testament and even the New Testament. Um, he, Christ even references the Pharisees as being uh, the murderers of the prophets, from Abel to Zacharias, uh, calls them a den of vipers. Um, this, you know, the children of the devil, their father is the devil. And this is also the reason for the contention between Ishmael and Isaac, Jacob and Esau. These kind of things are played out throughout the whole entirety of the Bible from the very beginning to the very end. Uh, and also, why is it if, you're, if, if Eve ate of some free fruit from some tree that the prophetic word speaks about her then going to have to give birth to children in sorrow and uh, Adam having to work the soil to bring forth sustenance for what would be the later progeny, his future children. Uh, and why is it that there would be enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, which is absolutely speaking about children, not that they you know, are planting fruit, um, and, and thy sons and her sons. It just does not make sense unless you understand that metaphorically and realize that what is being veiled is that that account has a sexual connotation which results in the prophecies that were laid out in Genesis chapter 3. It is fascinating. It's really fascinating. So what does that mean for us? What is, what's sort of the practical application or how does that change someone's faith? Well, the thing is, is this knowledge and this discernment, as Christ spoke about it in Matthew 13, he said that those things that he was revealing in those parables, that these are things that have been hidden since the foundation of the world. And if you don't understand the discernment nor the war between these two bloodlines going and being played out throughout all of history, you do not understand that there is a bloodline, a lineage right now with us, who we call the New World Order, secret societies, these Luciferians, uh, the sons of Cain, the sons of Belial, the sons of darkness, all of these that are ruling from behind the scenes, they are not like us. They, are, they do not have any concern for the common good, uh, the you know, freedom and rights being extended to all people everywhere. They're concerned with murder, lying, deceiving, control, power, wealth, money, all the things that the New World Order are and use to uh, subjugate those that work for them and through them. And so, if you don't understand, that's why it is all the presidents and the royals, they're all blood-related. This lineage is ruling from behind the scenes, and they are still waging war against the sons of Adam, and most of the sons of Adam have no idea that there's another bloodline and a lineage here that is present that has murdered all of the prophets, all of the apostles, even killed uh, our Savior Messiah. And so, and they are waging war against us right now on all the levels. Uh, 
medical through the vaccines, poisoning the food and the water, and you know, using government representatives to enforce their will. I mean, if you do not understand what is being played out in the war right now, you're never going to understand what even the word in the scripture is referencing because it is all connected. It sounds like, uh, to me, a lot of what you said there, I'm in personal agreement with in terms of, you know, these people in the New World Order, Illuminati, whatever you want to call it, has been around since the beginning, so to speak, and that, you know, there's there's people that call themselves the sons of Nephilim and stuff like that. It's definitely there. To my understanding, a lot of people will root it back to the Genesis 6 account rather than the Genesis 3 account. It sounds like you're suggesting that the whole Genesis 6 encounter was sort of uh, an example of it was made through what Satan did in Genesis 3 or 4. You know, a lot of what you're talking about with the serpent seed idea uh, is pretty prominent in, you know, Kabbalah. I think Kabbalah teaches similar uh, lines of thinking, and, you know, Gnostic teachings are, are, you know, echo the same sort of sentiment. How do we draw the line? You know, what what should we as believers, I mean, how do we parse that out? Do we take the truth out of something and, and you know, get, get rid of the rest? Or, I mean, how do we deal with that? Because in terms of like, for example, Kabbalah, I see Kabbalah, you know, uh, as being pushed into the public spectrum through music videos and, uh, you know, just pop culture and stuff like that without people really realizing it, you know, Madonna saying she's Kabbalist and stuff like that. Where do we draw the line? How do we understand uh, where that truth is, and you kind of know what I'm asking. Like, where where do we draw the line on how to parse out scripturally what it says with all these extra biblical texts? Well, the thing that I recommend people do is to study first the books that they are supposedly studying, anyways, and to build a foundation which is based on the King James version of the canon. But as I mentioned, in you have to understand the canon in order to then understand the truth that is found in all these other texts. Because they also, the sons of Cain, absolutely know the truth. They do not claim their, themselves to be from the sons of Adam. And I'll actually share with you something that confirms that in a short bit. But... um build a foundation on the canon, but understand what it is truly referencing and understand what Christ is speaking about. I think that Matthew chapter 13 is absolutely critical because therein Christ tells us himself about the condition of the world, the situation that they were living in in his time and that we are living in in our time. And it, he references and takes it all the way back to the beginning to the garden, to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Because this theme is played out through the entirety of Scripture. And again, as I said earlier, if you do not understand how it is being played out and why there is this angst between these two different, even with the sons of Jacob and the sons of Esau, that plays out for hundreds of years. The sons of Belial against the sons of light, even with the, the war scrolls, the Dead Sea scrolls, the, you know, the, the sons of 
light, the wars between the sons of light and the sons of darkness, uh, how all that plays out. This theme is woven into and is the underlying truth for everything, even who the Anunnaki are, the rebel angels, um, the watchers, and who they mated with. They mated with the daughters of Cain. And because the daughters of Cain were already hybrid, they were able to have children with them. And to understand that, you, you, know, you have to go to the Kebra Nagas, which is one of the uh, Ethiopic holy books that you know, a lot of people have not uh, read or studied for themselves. And, and, so, and it gives great detail as to how the, the most detail that you can find on how the Watchers ended up being in bodies of flesh themselves and how they were able to mate with the, the daughters of Cain. And so build your foundation, of course, on the canon, but open yourself to new possibility because people like myself are trying to teach you how to understand the canon so that if you, when you are ready and when you have built up this foundation, and you're ready for the meat instead of the milk, uh, and you are able then, because the Word also tells us to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. And so, for those that are able to handle it, go out and study these other texts, because they will give you extra detail and help you to understand the canon better than you might now believe you do. Now, John chapter 8, I believe it's verse 44, you are of your father, the devil, and, and, you know, you do what you, your, your father desires. I think most people would look at passages like that, or even Jude uh, verse 11, talking about the way of Cain, you know, they've gone the way of Cain. They would look at that and say, you know, it's sort of a spiritual thing, not so much of a lineage thing. How do you, is there a distinction there? It's absolutely physical, as I've told you with all of these other references. It is not a spiritual thing. It is a spiritual thing, too, absolutely. Yeah. But Christ tells us plainly that they are of their father, the devil, and he means it very literally. Because, again, if you go to... And, and I'll pull it up so we can talk about it. The parable of the sower. It is the key. It is absolutely important that people understand what he is referencing there. Because it, once you understand what he's talking about, there's no denying. I mean, you cannot. You can run around it, and you can avoid it, and you can deny it all you want. But truth is truth, and it's found everywhere. And Christ speaks about it himself. And so, let me pull it up real quick, because uh, we'll read just a little bit of it. Because this is the key, and he even tells us uh, it's the key, because he references it in passage 35 as being um, the secrets hidden since the foundation of the world. And so, let's go to that. Um, and it's the, the parable of the sowers. Right here it is. Another parable, he said, the kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man which sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the blade sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared the tares also. What is the blade? 
The blade is when the children were born. And the bringing forth fruit is that they came to be born and then they realized that Cain was not a child. Adam realized that Cain was not his child and was completely different from him. He was a tear. The servants of the householder came and said unto him, Sir, didst not thou sow good seed in thy field? From whence then have the tares? These are the angels. They are asking Christ, uh, where did these tares come from? Didn't you plant good seed in the world, which is the field? He said unto them, An enemy hath done this. The servant said unto him, Wilt thou then go that we gather them up? But he said, Nay, lest while you gather up the tares, ye root up also the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, Gather ye together the tares. Hold on. Uh, First the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. And just to, just to, uh, so that there's no denying what he is references, if you go to um, Matthew chapter 13, verse 35, he says, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things which have been kept secret from the foundation of the world. And then the, his disciples come to him. He, is no longer speaking in parable. He sends the multitudes away, and the disciples ask him directly, what are you talking about, the parables of the field? So let's read this. Then Jesus sent the multitude away, went into the house. His disciples came unto him, saying, Declare unto us the parable of the tares of the field. He answered and said unto them, Remember, he's not speaking in parables anymore. Because he's given them the truth directly. He that soweth the good seed is the son of man. So Christ is, you know, it it says that um, Adam was made, we were made in his image. We were made in the image of Christ. The field is the world. The good seed are the children of the kingdom. But the tares are the children of the wicked one. The enemy, again referencing the parable of the sower, the enemy that sowed them is the devil. So there, I mean, you, you huh. can't deny that it was the devil that sowed the tares. Right. The harvest is the end of the world, and the reapers are the angels. As therefore the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so shall it be in the end of this world. The Son of Man shall send forth his angels, they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, and them which do iniquity, and shall cast them into a furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. Who hath ears to hear, let him hear. And so, you know, it's if you really understand what Matthew chapter 13 is referencing, there's no denying. He tells you who uh, the tares are, that their father is the enemy uh, that sowed them, and the enemy is the devil. He is the wicked one. That's why in John chapter 8, uh, Cain is called, uh, he, he is of the wicked one. I mean, 
it's not literal. I mean, it's not um, just spiritual. This is a very literal, there are physical children of the devil here, and it goes back to Genesis 3, not Genesis 6. When you consider that as, or at least when I do, what, I mean, there's no... I guess you you can't like if you run into somebody and talk to them, you can't necessarily tell, right? I mean, there's probably you know based on your theory, there's definitely people out there, probably in churches or pastors or you know people that are you know leading the congregations and stuff who may you know theoretically be the seed of the serpent, so to speak. Can those people like, like I look at John eight here, you know, and then referencing him back, but he he talks about the you know you you are your uh, of your father the devil. He's sort of talking to these these Pharisees and stuff. Do they have even uh, an opportunity for repentance and to be saved, or is it is it just you know they're doomed? Well, when Christ died on the cross, and he extended salvation and grace to all people everywhere. This also was given to the sons of Cain. And yes, they have chance. That's why we have a lot of people that when they realize what they are involved in, you know, all these Illuminati defectors, individuals like John Todd, Arizona Wilder, uh, Carolyn Hamlet, uh, these kind of individuals, um, Kathy O'Brien, there's many, Savali, but they have since converted, accepted Christ as Savior Messiah, and understand what is being spoken about, and do not want to be counted with the sons of Belial, the sons of darkness, but they want to be counted with the minority that is the elect. And so, mm-hmm. uh, yes, but those that are hardcore Illuminati, that want nothing to do with salvation, that worship their father, the devil, um, and that give themselves over to seducing spirits and ask to be indwelt by some of these um, these serpent-like beings, which, you know, are also referenced in, in, in other uh, passages like the Testament of Amram, where it speaks about uh, the watcher and that he has a, a visage of a viper, um, you know, that uh, in the Emerald Tablets where it speaks of them as being serpent-headed, interdimensional beings. I mean, all these things are referenced to the Nakash, uh, which the Nakash is the feathered serpent. It's not a snake. Uh, the serpent is, is the a shining one, the enchanter, uh, a magician. And so you have to understand these things. And again, these are advanced concepts. And these are things that most mainstream Christians are not going to accept. They're not even going to open their ears to hear what you're speaking about. They're automatically going to label you insane, uh, just as they did Christ in his day and age. Uh, So, I mean, and if they're not going to do the research and do the study and to come to know the truth, well, they certainly aren't going to be, you know, ready to hear some of the truths that are found in some of these other texts which in my book, Lucifer, Father of Cain, I lay all of these sources and all of these references out to you. Uh, You can go and read them for yourself um, and go and 
find them in their original context and, you know, their um, original format. And so there's over 280 some quotes, source references in that book. I'm not asking people to just believe what I say or how I interpret it, uh, what they say, because the overwhelming evidence all put together and not just going outside of the canon, because as I talk to you here in this part um, of this show, uh, you don't have to go outside of the canon to confirm this as knowledge. Mm. But when you do, you find hundreds of references as to what we're talking about. Again, go to Luke chapter 3, uh, verse 23 through 35, and see if Cain is in Christ's lineage. He is not. And that's why, again, as I said with Genesis chapter 4, once you understand what verse 1 is speaking about there, you'll understand why it is found as the highlight of Genesis chapter 4, because that particular, uh, those passages and those scriptures are about the sons of Cain, the lineage of Cain. And then in Genesis chapter 5, you have the beginning of the description, the generations uh, of Adam. And if I'll... um, I'll pull up one other thing from the Targum on Genesis chapter 5 because it gives you absolute confirmation, again, as to what we're talking about. It says this in Genesis chapter 5 of the Targums. It says, This is the book of the genealogy of man. In the day that the Lord created man, in the likeness of the Lord he made him, male and female he created them. And blessed them in the name of his word, and he called their name man in the day they were created. And Adam lived a hundred and thirty years, and he begat Sheth, who had the likeness of his image and of his similitude. For before had Hava born Cain, who was not like to him. And Abel was killed by his hand, and Cain was cast out, neither is his seed genealized in the book of the genealogy of Adam. But afterwards, there was one born like him, and he called his name Sheth. Mm. So, I mean, it's undeniable. Mm. And it's not just spiritual. It's absolutely physical. Right. One more question on that, and we'll move on to some other topics. But I think one of the, I guess, perceived problems is... Uh, just that a perception problem, you know the 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 serpent seed idea is held by occultists and white supremacists, and I think Hitler even held the belief. There's a movement called the Christian Identity Movement that teaches a sort of the same thing. Ku Klux Klan and stuff. So there's a lot of sort of negatively perceived groups that tend to preach the same sort of thing. How do you distinguish yourself from? from that in terms of, you know, I guess in terms of application, or I would think that you're probably not a white supremacist or anything like that, but you know what I mean? Like, how do you deal with that? Well, truth is truth, no matter where you're found. It could be, it could be corrupted, and even like with the truth of 9-11, you know, um, what, what did George Bush say about that? You know, you're either with them or you're with us. And he called all those conspiracy theorists and how they have a negative connotation. It's the same kind of thing. Truth is truth. Just because it's been corrupted 
by others, you know, and I don't teach anything on race or on hate or, uh, you know, I'm just telling people what the scriptures say and how to understand them for themselves. I know that this kind of stuff has been, you know, um, assimilated by Nazis or white supremacists or um, Hitler and his henchmen. But still, truth is truth. And when you understand the Gospels, this is what it's speaking about. And so, are you going to deny it just because, you know, somebody um, corrupted it so long ago? And I believe they did that in order to sway people from ever even looking at it or uh, even investigating it or uh, giving it, you know, uh, 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 even uh, looking as far as researching into what it's being referenced in those particular passages. Mm. And they want you to, because again, the world is controlled by the devil. Christ said, the king, my kingdom is not of this world. We are under the authority of the devil and the fallen angels until we, you know, are returned to our first estate. But even the sons of Cain, they are the ones that are ruling from behind the scenes. And so, and they are the ones that are trying to keep the sons of Adam from even knowing about who they are and about how they control the world. And so, that's the way they do it in their modus of operandi. It even speaks about this in the protocols of the learned elders of Lucifer. They basically, in, if, if there's a truth out there, they attack it or they attack the messenger um, until... You know, they can scare people away from it. But these are the kind of things that are found and that are truth. Even Paul talks about this. I, I had mentioned 2 Corinthians chapter 11. It says this, verse 2 and 3. For I am jealous over you with godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear, lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. He's speaking about the beguilement that was occurred in Genesis chapter 3 that resulted in the birth of Cain, which is the seed of the serpent and the enmity between the bloodlines and the seed lines. That, again, we have played out through the entirety of Scripture. Uh, Isaac and Ishmael, Jacob and Esau, their sons, even David and Goliath represent that. Um, and then Goliath's brother and the war against David and his sons. I mean, it is played out even to Christ and the Pharisees. Yeah, that's it's a very compelling case you make, and um, you know, I I've probably have to do more study on it, and and. Uh, you know, I, I would recommend getting my book because if you if you really want to study this in fullness, uh, there's nowhere else that has all the references that I share and make and and all the source material uh, all in one place as that particular book. Right. right. I think again, as I mentioned, you know, it just it takes it one step back in terms of everything that I think most of us would agree with starting in Genesis chapter six. And it's sort of, you know, it's, it's one step before that, that where you're, you know, pretty much but saying. But that step is absolutely critical. Right. right. Um, 
Let's move on. Uh, actually, let's... oh hey, can I read one last thing sure. before we move on from this? Yeah, read it. Uh, there, this is from uh, an individual that was hired to be an investigator. He's a geneticist. He was murdered over this information. But anyways, um, his friend, who was also a geneticist, acquired his research. And what had happened is he was hired by one of these Illuminati um, high up, you know, higher ups. And he wanted to see if there was a difference in the DNA, in the genetics of the sons of Cain and what is referenced as the, the sons of Adam. And so uh, the individual that acquired and inherited the research, he says this. And this is the last thing we'll speak about as far as this topic. But this will give you insight as to how the... Illuminati also know that they are not of the sons of Adam. It says this, In his notes, my friend pens some personal thoughts after having considered his observations and source of his DNA materials. On the plane raid back stateside, my friend, who at the time was one of the most knowledgeable DNA researchers on the planet, pulled out the biggest piece of mental jerky I've ever gnawed on. His benefactor, test subject, believed that while most of the sons of Adam had double-strand DNA, he had been told by his family that he and his blood relatives were distinctly different and that he, like his fathers before him, had triple-strand DNA. Mm -hmm. He wanted my friend to secretly prove once and for all if this was true or not. The subject claimed that his extended family and their cousins, who are kings, queens, princesses, and princesses, as well as leaders of industry and banking worldwide, believe they are children of an otherworldly race of humanoid beings. He'd been taught by his tutors that once upon a time, his ancestors had fallen to earth after some cosmic calamity in the time before the garden. He believed that while their ancestral mother was Eve, their ancestral father was not Adam. He mm. was torn to know if a child of Cain was actually genetically different and whether he could be saved. He thought of the Vatican's pronouncement that the aliens are our cousins and the Vishnu teachings of a time when gods flew in spaceships and destroyed whole cities in a single blast. He even had notes about Elijah being caught up in a chariot of fire. Maybe he had misread or misunderstood the entire history of his Bible. Maybe from Genesis to Revelation, it was about some far more tangible and real fallen angel alien cousins than the ghost-like destroying angels he had always pictured in his imagination. It only matters what they believe because our original subject and his relatives, who are kings, queens, princesses, and princesses, as well as leaders of industry and banking worldwide, they are act and as though they are children of another worldly race of humanoid beings, but not human only, hybrid human, more than human, superior alien human. Our subject and his kin had been taught by their families and tutors that once upon a time their ancestors had fallen to the earth, and he believed that while their ancestral mother was Eve, their ancestral father was not Adam. They believe they are our humanoid cousins, superior hybrids, half alien, and only half human. They once reigned from Olympus and were pharaohs, 
Whatever the real truth of their history, their belief is the driver of their actions. Being the true believers they are, they will continue to operate in accordance with their belief and the laws of alien, Darwinian-type survival. That's why they interbreed to maintain the purity of their bloodline. That's why they secretly meet and connive to pass power between themselves. And that's why they must fool the rest of mankind into wars of self-destruction and debt so that we may be forever enslaved to their lust on this prison planet till death do us part. More than afraid, they know in their hearts this is a fight for survival, their fight for survival. It had begun, just as my friend had said, as a murder investigation, starting with the first murder when that Luciferian demon dad had whispered of the evil deed to his willing child, Cain. It continued down through time, the sons of Adam fighting for survival, destroying the alien giants in Canaan land, David and the hybrid Goliath, his four hybrid brothers, and all the hidden true believers since, hidden in plain sight, so powerful, so important, I'm almost done, so, so afraid. These earthbound half-cousins of ours continue to laugh, but it is a nervous laugh at that, as they have a joke or two at our expense, recreating their lying father's fall to earth and flashing their heretofore secret gang sign, hand signs to each other right in our face. I know now how dangerous their beliefs are because they are being driven by their beliefs, taught to them by their real alleged father, the father of lies. And even now, he knows the truth and whispers in his initiate's ears, just as he did in Cain's ear. The sons of Adam, as long as they live, they are dangerous. Wow. Wow. (laughs) Actually, the segue is is sort of perfect, because I wanted to talk a little bit about your research about the pre-Adamic situation of what might have been going on. And um, sure. that fascinates me. I know it's a, another one of those topics that's it's pretty, uh, you know, there's there's two sides and, you know, they throw stones at each other and that kind of thing. But, you know, I, I tend to believe that there's good evidence um, biblically that something was going on before the creation of man. And, and obviously, you know, you look at all the extra biblical text and it speaks into that, uh, especially a lot of the Sumerian mythologies. What have you found about what was happening before the creation of mankind? Uh, absolutely. And this is another one of those areas of contention because, you know, most mainstream churches teach that the entirety of the history of the universe and our planet uh, can be found within 6,000 years. And so they believe in a young earth age, which if you just take into the account the geological and archaeological record, it absolutely, there's thousands, millions of pieces of evidence which confirm that the age of the earth and the universe far surpasses 6,000 years, no matter how old you think it is. And so, in studying, because I told you that uh, I was brought out of the New Age, I had studied all the Sumerian texts before I ever uh, studied all the biblical 
uh, texts. And so I'm very well versed in the Anunnaki and the Sumerian teachings and um, also what the Egyptians refer to as Zep Tepe um, the first times. Um, even things like Mantheo and um, the Chaldean historian Barossus, because they were hired, one by Alexander the Great, the other by the Egyptian priesthood, to write the history of the prior times, what I refer to as the prior times. And the prior times are those ages um, which were before the modern creation of Adam and Eve, or what I reference as the second world age, which is the modern age, or what we are living in now, since the beguilement of Adam and Eve, the fall of our ancestors, and their exile here to this planet, where the rebel angels were already exiled to. And if you read second book of Enoch, the book of the secrets of Enoch, it's the only place that you will find a reference as to when the war in heaven was, when Lucifer and the rebel angels were cast out. And it speaks about this event as happening on the second day. And the second day, and the reason it happened on the second day, is because Christ was revealed to the sons of God as the light of the world. When the Father said, let there be light, this was actually the revealing of Christ to the entirety of the universe. This is when um, the creation became visible. This is also the moment when iniquity was found within Lucifer, because as the first created archangel, he desired that worship. He desired to be as the sun. He wanted to have dominion over the heavens. And as it references Isaiah chapter 14 and Ezekiel chapter 28, all the I am, I will exalt myself above the throne of God, I will seat my uh, throne in the sides of the north, all those things. Right. And so the war in heaven occurred after the separation of light and darkness, the division of good and evil. And Lucifer tempted then the angels of the Most High because in truth, he doesn't have his own angels. He is an angel himself. And one-third of the angels of the Most High joined him in this rebellion that wanted to be as gods themselves, to rule over kingdoms and creations of their own. Uh, they joined them in the war. They were cast out. They were exiled. They found themselves in this solar system. The stories picked up in the Sumerian texts speaks about how they were on this planet, uh, Nibiru, Planet X, Maldek, whatever you want to call it. Uh, this planet got caught up in this solar system, became part of this, um, became part of the solar system. And when it was initially caught, it was brought into um, conflict with Tiamat, which was the old Earth. And the old Earth used to be where the asteroid belt is now. This is all referenced in Genesis where it speaks about the dividing of the waters, the dividing of the firmaments. When the planet was destroyed, it was shifted in its orbital rotation. It was placed exactly at the point and the, in, in an orbit that would be conducive for the multiplicity of life. 
And this is also the event that is mentioned in Genesis uh, chapter 1 and verse 2 of the earth becoming null and void. And, you know, then it mentions the, the dividing of the waters, dividing of the um, heavens, and then how land then appeared upon the planet. And the reason that occurred is because where one of the satellites or one of the moons of Nibiru had hit is where the gouge is, where the Pacific Ocean is. And whereas Tiamat used to be this huge watery planet, um, and that it had this, like many of the outer planets do, it has a, uh, had a canopy of clouds, of this water vapor surrounding it, and it speaks about in Genesis also how um, there was not yet rain and how there was no man to till the earth. Uh, well, once the, you know, once the oceans receded and many of the waters receded into the gouge where the Pacific Ocean is, that's when the land masses appear and the generations of the earth, the recreation of the earth, all took place and then the you know, you had the grasses and the trees and all that growing. And also with the destruction, this is why uh, it references that those things occurred before, you know, um, what became the stars also became visible with the destruction of this watery canopy um, and, and the sun and the moon and signs and the sun and the moon and the stars, all that, the calendar, um, all that became possible. Um, and, and then, you know, then there was the pre-Adamic human, which is mentioned in Genesis 1, and then, you know, that was here from um, the creation, and it talks about the Elohim and all that. And then we go into the creation of modern humanity, which was the second world age, um, how Adam and Eve were created in paradise. They were beguiled and fell from there, and ended up here, and it was Lord God or Yahweh Elohim that had done all that, all that plays into that. But the prior times, you find that the Anunnaki, as it mentions in the Sumerian text, they arrived here 432,000 years ago, or what are 10 shars, and a shar is equal to one rotation of their planet around the sun, which is equivalent to 3,600 years. So if you times 10, um, that 3,600 years, you come to 432,000 years. And this also falls in line with the Sumerian king list, as well as the king list that is listed by uh, Barossus and Mantheo, and, um, which talks about the gods, you know, gods with a little g, and how they ruled before and one of their hybrid children uh, began to rule, and how their rule was for 30,000 years, 24,000 years, you know, all these, what seems to be just completely ludicrous to us, and seemingly impossible, but yet, when you consider that it was the rebel angels that are being referenced, those that were cast out with Lucifer, and that are the seraphim angels, or you know, Sarah uh, is snake or serpent, and then Rephaim is giant. Uh, and so these rebel angels were these giant feathered serpent-like, dragon-like beings. 
and that they were the ones responsible for the creation of many of these megalithic structures worldwide and at a time when you know humanity was not even hunter and gatherer yet and we had no technological ability to do the things that are found in the geological record and you have these advanced geometrically aligned cities uh, aligned to the stars that are even under the surface of the oceans and lakes and, and and you know and these things were created at a time going thousands and thousands of years, uh, years into um, what was the prior times or Zeptepe and these things were not done by humanity. I know that the ancient aliens teach that uh, the you know the these extraterrestrials came down and and gave this knowledge to humanity, and that's why we were able to achieve these things. But that's that's total. Um, I, it, it's it's bull because it was the fallen angels themselves that did these things, uh, and and they were you know the giants even before the giants that came uh, as a result of the um, the merger. Uh, the interdiction of the Watchers with the Daughters of Cain. That was a, a race of giants too, but the Fallen Angels were giants, you know, also. And, and they far exceeded in size and ability the giants that came about as a result of uh, the mating of the Watchers with the, the Daughters of Cain. And so when you understand that the prior times uh, speak about the fallen angels and their presence here upon this planet and that they were here before we were and that they attempted to make a slave race out of the pre-Adamic human that was here before the modern creation of Adam and Eve. Then everything as far as the history of not only Genesis as it's referenced in verse 1 and 2 with the earth becoming null and void, uh, the Sumerian Chronicles and the teachings, the Egyptians, Zeptepe, why it is that uh, all these pagan religions have a, a pantheon of gods and goddesses, and how these particular beings, uh, according to the Anunnaki, the Sumerian teachings, they're uh, depicted as, you know, dragons, reptilian feathered serpents, um, why it is that we have worldwide the worship of the feathered serpent the the nakash of genesis chapter 3 um dragons bringing down the wisdom of the heavens the secrets uh knowledge of the mysteries of the heavens here to the earth uh, how it is that um uh, they were able to create these structures and to build them when we cannot even replicate them today ooh <laughs> No, there, there's a lot there. Uh, that is a lot. That is fascinating. And those, that's, uh, I mean, uh, most of that is stuff that we've heard here and there just from the Sumerian writings and things. And so, and especially with the Nibiru, that, that there's a big uh, thing with Nibiru a few years ago. I think everybody thought it was coming back for us or something. Um, but that's, that's really fascinating. That's quite a web that, that you just explained there. And and it, do, you, it, do you have a book that outlines all that? Or oh yeah, my uh, sixth book, 
sons of God, who we are and why we're here, um, references all of that. And in fact, um, the very beginning of the book, uh, it's the timeline for creation where I laid out exactly what I just told you. And then I expound upon it with the entirety of hmm. the rest of the book. Right. And so if, if I understand you correctly, so the Genesis creation story, um, you see it as more of like a, um, a reference to these other things or a, a metaphor or, or how, do, how did you describe that? Uh, Gen- well, I actually, in the timeline of creation that's in my book, I break down exactly what Genesis is referencing. Uh-huh. And I tell you um, the story, and I expound upon it with, again, all the other texts that are available to us out there so that you can understand what is actually being told in Genesis chapter one through three. Right. Um, because again, it like the parable of the sower and the wheat and the tares, unless you understand what is being spoken about there, what is being referenced in detail, um, you, it, it's really, it's mind blowing how much material is there and how symbolically veiled it is within the, um, you know, in the gospel. Okay. Now, there's passages in Isaiah 51, uh, verse 9, Psalm 89, verse 10. They both mention Rahab. And uh, yes. in particular, Isaiah 51, awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord, awake as in the ancient days in the generations of old, which is interesting. Are you not the arm that cut Rahab apart and wounded the dragon? And then Psalm 89.10, you have broken Rahab in pieces as one who is slain. You have scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. This seems to indicate, and David Flynn was was big on this, suggesting that there was previous judgment you know, throughout the solar system uh, that caused, right. uh, the, the Sumerian called it, you know, the destruction of Tiamat and stuff like that. When we look at that, can we understand that there was, you know, these, these Elohim that were here before humanity and we know that also because you know uh, the uh the job 38 7 passage where it talks about the morning stars and the sons of god shouted for joy you know upon the creation of the earth obviously there were worshipers of yahweh back then and you know there were people that or people or, or beings i guess that worshiped yahweh and of course there were those that didn't how do we uh i mean it's kind of hard to wrap your brain around or at least for me you know what the those Dr. Michael Heiser calls them the divine council, the bureaucracy of, of Elohim or angels, so to speak, that existed, that worshipped Yahweh. I mean, how do you think that looked? What, what sorts of uh, indications are there with the extra-biblical text and Sumerian literature that refers to that at all, if at all? Well, it's the same with the way it is right now, and it's been this way since the very beginning. You know, before the rebel angels uh, went to war against the Most High, they were all sons of God. They were all angels, part of the divine council. And it was only when they wanted to be as gods themselves that they attempted this war and they were cast out. 
and exiled here to this particular planet. And they set up shop here, so to speak. Uh, and But the angels of the Most High have been involved at every turn of the way. And yes, there has been judgment levied upon them, including what I reference as the destruction of Tiamat, uh, even with the destruction of Atlantis and the destruction of the flood of Noah's day, the Joshua being led into the land of Canaan and told to wipe out every man, woman, and child, uh, the sons of Anak that were riding and ruling there. The, again, this theme is played out through the entirety of Scripture. And the angels, it's the same thing. There are the rebel angels have been trying to um, divert worship and any worship of Yahweh and any knowledge of Yahweh and Yahushua um, uh, as the you know, Son of God for the Father and the Son are one. They've been trying to divert that worship or bastardize it or take it over so that that worship is actually pointed and exalted towards them. That's why even Christianity was married with pagan religions. And why it is that, you know, Christ's birthday is celebrated on the winter solstice when he wasn't born in the winter. I mean, all these things um, are, are idolatry taking over mainstream churches, even, you know, the, the, what we have with Easter. Um, it's all the, the same kind of thing. All what are real Christian holy days or celebrations of Christ have been linked to pagan holidays. And many people, you know, good, God-fearing, Christ-loving individuals are involved in idolatry without realizing it or knowing it uh, because the mainstream churches have been corrupted. And most, uh, most of, the, uh, of these churches are involved in you know, this idolatry and this paganism without realizing it. And it's the same thing for the world. In Revelation 12, it says that that old serpent, that ancient dragon that deceiveth the entirety of the world, that is what we are dealing with. And this is, again, is why it's important to understand that there is a bloodline and a lineage that we are at war against that has been a waging war against us as the sons of Adam since the very beginning. This is why they, the Pharisees uh, conspired to kill the Savior Messiah. I mean, unless you understand, you know, the, the, the beginning, you cannot understand the middle nor the ending and what we are dealing with now. Right. So, I, I'm, I'm actually working on my first book here, and it's about the secret space program and different things. One of the researchers that I've really looked into is a guy named Dr. Joseph Farrell. And, he, you know, he's a secular researcher. He comes at it from a different sort of angle. But he does really look into the Sumerian literature with, uh, you know, some of the destruction of Tiamat and, and the drama that was recorded in some of those, uh, uh, the Enuma Elish and other places concerning Enlil versus, uh, oh gosh, Enki. One of the things that he talks about is something called the Tablet of Destinies as sort of a super cosmic scale weapon. And 
uh, I don't know if you've run across this or, or, or written about it, but you know, one of the theories that Joseph Farrell has is that the elite now with the secret space program and everything else are trying to find some of the scattered remains of this technology. Uh, Absolutely. And what have you found out about that? And, and also, you know, because his conclusions are a little different because he sees Yahweh, uh, he kind of takes the Gnostic approach and says that Yahweh is one of these lowly gods and he actually just has possession of the tablets of destinies right now or you know a, a, another form of technology that's cosmic in scale and so that's why he's sort of the the ruler right now so to speak but that you know that yeah, i don't know he doesn't really get into a belief in a in a you know a truly higher uh, ultimate supreme god or anything like that I, i'm not sure what his position is uh, regarding that but you know what have you found out about such technologies and you know how does that relate to Yahweh. All right. Well, let me clarify this first because a lot of very well researched individuals, PhDs, people that have um, bought into this whole Neoteric theology of the ancient aliens right. as being the creators of humanity, or those that supposedly study the Gnostic texts or are, you know, profess them to be experts in them. First off, the Gnostics do not. Uh, claim or none of the texts assert that Yahweh is Yaldabaoth, the Demiurge. And in fact, if you read the Gnostic text for yourself, you'll find that there are three names uh, associated to the Demiurge, Yaldabaoth, Saklas, and Samael. And Samael is one of the names that the Targums call Satan, the adversary that beguiled Eve in the garden. So that's the first thing you have to understand about the Gnostic text. They do not in anywhere reference Yahweh, the Father, uh, the Most High, the Creator, as being the Demiurge. They, in fact, um, cite the Yaldabaoth or the Demiurge as being Satan, just like we do in Christian theology. But it's my opinion that that um, is, has been expounded and has been asserted by these so-called Gnostic experts to keep people from reading them because there's so much detail and so much um, extra information found within them because the Nakamati Codices are one of the other sources that like the book of Enoch, give us great detail as to who these fallen angels are. It calls them the archons. And if you don't read them, or, and if you don't read you know, uh, the book of Enoch, where it speaks about the rebel angels and also the watchers, well, then you're not going to know these things. And here's the other thing. These Sumerian teachings, uh, whereas most people, just as you said, they assert that Yahweh is Enlil and that Anki is Satan. This is not true either. If you really study and do your homework on who Enlil and Anki are, you'll find that Anki has a reference to Poseidon, to Neptune. And even um, in the book of uh, Critias and Timaeus written by Plato, he references, you know, how the uh, there were sons and daughters that Atlas was the first child, uh, and that Poseidon, the god Poseidon, took on 
and married an earth woman and had children with him. And who Enlil really is, is Zeus. And, and that both of these individuals are part of the pantheon of the fallen angels. And so if you understand that, because most people, again, the, one of the reasons why they reject what the Sumerian teachings are, or they reject the you know, Christianity and the teachings of the Old Testament is because they think Enlil uh, is, is Yahweh, and when it's totally not true. And I, I verify this and show the source references for this in my book, Sons of God, because this is such an important part, and this is one of those things which keeps people from either believing in Christianity or studying the Gnostic texts or ever reading the Sumerian text when, in my opinion, it's important to read all of them. And so, once you understand this, because the, how it is that, um, that um, Enlil came to be Zeus is because he was not part of the first expedition uh, of the Anunnaki here. The first to arrive here of the Anunnaki was a king, an exiled king named Alalu, and he was able to break through the asteroid belt, come here to the earth, and having found gold, um, you know, because they were undergoing ecological disaster on their own planet, they needed gold, which they could not find in plentiful supply in the outer planets, to crush up, to suspend as powder into their atmosphere to re the sun's rays every time they came close to the sun in orbital rotation um, because when they had this ozone, you know, this um, ozone depletion, it would wreak devastation upon their planet and upon the creatures of their planet. And so when he arrived here, he wanted to be reinstituted as king on Nibiru, but they said that they would talk about that. Another expedition of 50 Anunnaki arrived here, headed by Enke, who was the second child of Anu, um, and that he, he established what was the first colony, Eridu, home in the faraway, and he established that there in the Middle East. Um, and that um, when the next expedition arrived with a group of 200 heroes, as they say in the Sumerian text, this group was headed by Enlil, and that when Enlil arrived here, he took over um, the, you know, took over the Middle Eastern area, and then Enki was sent to the Abzu, which is South Africa, Africa, that particular region, and he was to focus on mining the gold in that region, and then Enlil set up and became the supreme being of that particular part, and, you know, he's known as Zeus in the Greek, um, uh, the Greek, you know, the myths and the Roman mythology, but both of them are part of that pantheon. They are both um, part of the fallen angels, the Anunnaki, uh, the rebel angels that that you know, are celebrated by all these pagan cultures worldwide. And that Yahweh Elohim, as the creator, um, 
He is the God of the Old Testament, and he's the God that went to war against all these pagan religions and established his people apart. He's also the one that created modern Adam and Eve, our modern ancestors. And so that's the part of the story that they don't tell you about and that most people don't understand. Um, because unless you study all of these different things together, you just can't piece the story together. You can't parallel all the information and see what is truth and what is not. And so, um, I forgot the original. <laughs> um, the original question was about uh, Gonza space weapons there, I think. Uh, oh, yeah. And, and so, in the Sumerian teachings, you you have all this information and their description of creating, you know, um, machinery and how they were able to utilize technology even to arrive here, how they established way stations on both uh, the moon and Mars, and that a lot of the stuff that we see on Mars was things, even with the face on Mars, there's a Sumerian story that talks about uh, Alalu, who was the first exiled king, he was the first Anunnaki to die um, off-planet. And when he died, he was exiled to Mars. Um, and when he died, he was buried by, I, I believe his name is Anzu, who was another one of the Anunnaki that agreed to stay with him and to uh, they were going to pick him up the next time they came through. And they did. And when they picked him up, he showed them where this exiled king was buried. And to honor him, they carved the face uh, to represent, you know, this exiled king dying on Mars. And so that story is also found in the, the Sumerian mythology. Um, but yeah, there's so much as far as the Sumerian texts and um and as you spoke about with uh, the book of Job and other parts where it talks about the destruction of Rahab, all of those things were judgments, again, against the fallen angels um, because they had established bases on the different, um, the different planets. Uh, even with the Sumerian teachings, as I said, they speak about their establishing these way stations on the moon and Mars. And, and so there's... Reference even Balbak is spoken about because when Enlil took over command of the Middle East, he did not want to take over Eridu, which Enki had built up. But he speaks about establishing his base near the tall cedars. And you know, we know that Lebanon and that Balbak is outside of the cedar forest, and the largest of cedar trees are, are found there. And that, um, he established that particular base as a what would be um, a spaceport, and and all these things you know are found uh, in the Sumerian mythology. Unless you have the eyes to see and the ears to hear and a mind to understand, well, you just cannot understand the fullness of the story. But if you want to know all the things that I've been talking about in this second part. Just get my six books, Sons of God, Who We Are While We're Here, or, or listen to all the many radio shows that I make available for free uh, yeah. about the Sons of God, because uh, I've done 
hundreds, if not thousands of shows on all this material um, for those that, you know, can't afford to buy my books. um, Because it's not about that for me. It's about helping people to understand not only the gospel, but the underlying truth that connects as the jigsaw puzzle of truth, all these segregated and independent sources, uh, the mythological account, uh, ancient mystery, history, uh, the geological record, archaeological record, all of these things, because they all parallel to make and create what is the greatest story never told. Wow. That is very, very fascinating, Zen. Um, uh, the amount of depth and research that you have into uh, even just, I'm sure, the, the small portion of it that you shared with us today is fascinating and daunting. And then I would like you to tell us where to get your books, where to listen to your radio stuff. Um, so if people are more interested in looking further into your research, then uh, they know where to do that. Sure. Um, well, you can go to zengarcia.com. There are links for all my books there. Uh, there. I'm published through Tate Publishing, so you can find my books at tatepublishing.com, or you can go to lulu.com or amazon.com or barnesandnoble.com. Uh, they're sold many, many places now, uh, eBay, um, and, and as far as my radio programs, are you on uh, Amazon? Yeah, they're all on Amazon, too. Well, most of them. Uh, the first two are not carried because they're sold out. But you can also, if you want to find links to all my books and all my radio shows, just go to uh, fallenangels.tv, www.fallenangels.tv, not .com, not .net but .tv, um, and you'll find links to all this information. But also, I do a Saturday show on blogtalkradio.com backslash Fallen Angels TV, and then I do a Wednesday evening broadcast on Revolution Radio at freedomslips.com on Studio B, uh, 8 to 10 p.m. on Wednesday. Um, and there's also links, I, you know, I publish links to my shows, uh, on Facebook under Zen Garcia. So you Very can find cool. a lot of my material there. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Zen Garcia. We're just about out of time. Um, so is there any last message you want to send out there into the, to the internets um, before we let you go? Well, just, uh, you know, what um, Einstein said, the condemnation without investigation um, you know, to those kind of things are what Edmund uh, Spencer spoke about in talking about how unless one opens oneself to new possibility that you really, unless you investigate it first, you really cannot make judgment upon it. And that most people don't even understand the foundation of the canon, um, so they certainly aren't going to understand the other material that is out there. I would say build a a foundation with the canon, and then if you are advanced in your seeking, then be wise as serpents and go out and study some of that other stuff. Because all of it together, we're like we're like a, an investigator or um, 
a homicide detective that goes and plots out and studies every bit of evidence, every piece of evidence, even if it may not look like evidence. It could be a bubblegum paper or, you know, a cigarette butt. But at some point, it may be relevant in your investigation, in your study of truth. And you never know where those pieces of evidence are going to come from. So, in my opinion, I think that as good seekers, as good students of the Word, that we really should study all things and and at least uh, read them before making judgments upon them. Awesome. Well, thank you so much once again, Zen Garcia, everybody. Thanks for coming on the show, and uh, hopefully we'll talk to you again soon. My pleasure. All right, God buddy. Bless all. You too. We'll talk to you later. All right. Peace. There you have it, folks. Thanks for listening to this episode of Canary Cry Radio. Make sure to tune in next time. But until then, think outside the cage. to be working all right online okay so hold on let me stretch (laughs) that's the perfect introduction yeah did some extreme sports yesterday so a little sore look at this hashtag on twitter things michelle obama thinks are racist (laughs) That's a hashtag. That's awesome. The whole thing? That's the whole, yeah. And I think it's because of a story where she, like somebody asked her to get something off a shelf or something. Uh Uh-huh. And she's like, that's racist. And it's like, no, maybe you're just taller than people. Well, you're asking the first lady to get something for you. Oh, (laughs) racist. That's obviously racist. Things that offend liberals, things that are not mosques things that Michelle things Michelle Obama thinks are racist okay I can't find it hashtag things Michelle Obama thinks are racist come on man it's trending right now I think you're making this up <laughs> I'm not making it I up I don't here. think this I'm is real gonna, oh okay alright here we go find it. 
things Michelle Obama thinks are racist. Raindrops on roses and whiskers on kids. I know, I just saw that too. I was about to read that. <laughs> That's good. White people who criticize black people for saying stupid things. That's a little racist. Um, chicken nuggets with ketchup. <laughs> things Michelle Obama thinks are racist. Ritz crackers. Ooh. You finally saw Interstellar. I, I did, yeah. Right, yeah. What'd you think? Um, I mean, I thought it was okay. It, it yeah. was it was one of those movies that. So so my my whole intuition about it being sort of a, I guess a propaganda piece for a breakaway civilization type thing. I think I was right about that in some uh -huh. respects. You know, NASA goes underground and blah blah blah. Right. But uh. I thought the whole, you know, I think you had said it too, but, you know, uh, when I was watching it, first off, I saw it alone, okay? Loser. <laughs> I felt like such a loser. I walked <laughs> into the theater. I'm like sitting down, like I put my jacket in the, on the chair next to me, you know, like to make it look like right. someone's coming. But I felt like an idiot afterwards because it's like, just all, nobody, nobody showed up. Show. Yeah, she didn't show up. <laughs> no, well, luckily, Interstellar, that's, that's one of those movies that you can like go alone. Like, especially yeah. if you just kind of look like a guy who would be really into watching Interstellar. Right. You know what I mean? Like, you, you could just put on some glasses and hike your pants up a little bit and go watch some space. Right, right. Well, I mean, I I, I liked the AI characters. Right. Uh, oh my gosh! The robots are the best robots that have ever been in cinema. Yeah, totally. Oh my... Hands down, best robot characters ever. Yeah, well, you know, when when humans are behind the character, it gives them right. more personality. Greatest thing I've ever seen. I honestly, I couldn't shut up about those robots. <laughs> I couldn't if for like days. <laughs> yeah. I've, so, I, and at first, when you first see them, you're like, "This is stupid." Yeah. <laughs> How does that even? You know, like when you first meet the robot. Anyways, and by the, by the end, you're tearing up. I know. I know. Um. Okay. But yeah, so, I. It was way more new age than I expected. Obviously. Uh -huh. Yep. A humanistic type thing. Yes. So, you know, whatever. I, Very, I mean, it was a un, decent movie. Unabashedly uh, new age. Oh, totally. Um, so, but still good. Yeah, good movie. Matthew McConaughey was all right, you know. Very, uh, very poor depiction of string theory. Yeah. <laughs> like literal, like <laughs> literal like really, strings. <laughs> this, this is it. This is what you're doing. Um, so, okay. So, there you go. Everybody yeah. go watch it or don't. Whatever. Let us know what you thought about it. You know, that's interesting. I'm sure some people out there have like a a document that they've been recording all of their thoughts about that movie. Yeah. You know, we, uh, we love those people. We, we, there's somebody out there listening right now with some sort of manifesto on almost any subject. So that's true. Let us know what you think. I actually just rented again. I saw it again. The, uh, ooh, what is it? The Guardians of the Galaxy. You rented it? Yeah, well, like, no, I, I saw it in theaters in the no, I saw it in theaters in the summertime, and we have these yeah. things called the the red box. Out ah, here. yes, the red box. Yeah, it's like a buck or whatever to rent yeah. a movie. It's just easier. Robot, robot video store. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, that that movie's got a lot of stuff in it that it's it's based. I mean, 
I don't know how much Stan Lee knows about like Sumerian mythology. Mm-hmm. But Probably a lot. It's like a lot of that stuff. Yeah, yeah. No, they're they're all on top of that. All those comic books and stuff are all kind of based off of not all, but you know they use that. And, and just as writers or people who create stories or anything, um, even a lot of Hollywood, they're like, ah, oh, we don't have any ideas. <laughs> What's something that's really crazy, but like old enough that literally no one on the planet would know about it <laughs> sumerian stuff okay i think i mean i think i i love all the kind of the conspiracy stuff about that you know but part of me is also like i think they're just getting lazy and they like have to go far back enough in time to well, steal a story it's either like remake a movie you know or right or promote ancient astronaut illuminati stuff <laughs> there's really nothing else yeah well in also, i mean although there is that guy who said he you know what he worked for the cia and was a consultant for hollywood yeah. to make sure that they got all of their like esoteric nonsense correct yeah that's right um, brainwashing i think i reached out to him to see if he wanted to come on but i haven't heard back from him huh. um gods and kings exodus is, uh, right. is on theaters and so here's what's hysterical. Like I, you know, I didn't really plan to see it, but and I haven't seen it. But Christianity Today came out and was like, "Oh, the most biblically accurate movie of you know ever by Hollywood." You know, it said that <laughs> something like that. It was it was ridiculously like for praising praising uh, yeah. Um, and then Dr. Brian Matson, I believe. Mm-hmm. Who's uh, the same guy who got who, whose post about Noah went viral, like right. talking about it's uh, you know, pay uh, not pagan, um, uh, a Gnostic, you know, right. and Kabbalah and all the stuff that was in Noah, and he wrote <laughs> he wrote a piece about Exodus and he called it if it were Islam, Ridley Scott would need a bunker. <laughs> yeah, wow. And I mean, he just goes off huh. on how like he okay, so he, he basically he talks about how. You know the the depiction of ancient Egypt and you know that how the plagues may have looked and stuff like that uh, quite compelling. You know the CGI and all that stuff was great, but pretty much the bad guy in the movie is Yahweh. Like, of course, and and Yahweh is portrayed by an eleven year old boy. And what? <laughs> yeah, apparently, uh, and then I haven't seen it. I don't really want to see it, but huh. um, and the. The character of Yahweh is portrayed as, uh, again, 11-year-old boy, utterly unlikable, unsmiling, adolescent, impertinent, bloodthirsty, and vengeful brat, is how he describes this 11-year-old boy who is, who's supposedly Yahweh. Right, which sounds exactly like... You know. How Richard Dawkins describes Yahweh. Exactly. Um, so you said you didn't see it, or you did see no, it? No, I, I, I didn't see it, and I really oh. don't really want to see it either. Well, come on, man. You got to give Hollywood your your money. I'll give him a dollar at the red box when it comes out. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, obviously, I don't think anybody is expecting anything that good. No. I think, you know, it's interesting because there's all this talk about how, like, Hollywood's making Christian movies. The Christians are making it happen in Hollywood. You know, and then... It just is a huge disappointment every single time. Right. And, and it was always, I mean, it's kind of an axiom in Hollywood where, like, if you make a Christian movie, 
you will make your money back because all the Christians will see it. Right. And there's enough Christians who are stoked enough for Christian movies that, you know, you're going to make money. Um, but I think it's going to start not happening that way. You know? Well, I mean, I, I guess the concern is that, you know, those Christians who are like, you know, oh, so awesome, you know, right. and it's like, oh, you got to go see it. It's perfect. It's biblically accurate. And it's like, ah, me. Like, okay, here we go. Uh, the, the Christianity Today article on Exodus, Gods and Kings, talks about how the film is beautiful. Right. And committed to realism. Uh, okay, so they were a little little bit critical. I mean, yeah. but it was stupid stuff like, oh, for a film committed to realism, the casting of white people is a major problem. <laughs> oh, like, yeah. Come on. I mean, whatever. Classic. That's, that's, you know, whatever. No, everybody was white back then. It says so right in our history books. <laughs> I don't know what that means. Uh, um, yeah. Anyway. Okay. So that's the thing. And, and it's yeah. too bad because I, I was kind of a Christian Bale fan back in uh, back Batman in Batman days. No, before that. Um, Ooh, you're so he, hipster. I know. I'm so hip. Gosh, I don't even remember the name of the movie now. What was the movie where it was like kind of like Matrix? Um, Equilibrium. Equilibrium. Yeah. Yes. That, that movie was, a good was one. awesome. That was that a good was, one. That was college dorm That's favorite. That's true. That was some pretty early Christian Bale. Not the earliest, but still no, early. not the earliest. But yeah, that, that movie was... Like, I remember everyone was talking about The Matrix, and then every like all the cool people were like, oh, dude, you got to see Equilibrium. Yeah. It's like way better than The Matrix. And I don't know <laughs> if it was way better, but it, it, you know, it, it employed the same kind of philosophy and stuff like that. Yeah, it was like, it was like The Matrix with like... Um, Aldous Huxley, like right, 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 in there. Um, so yeah, okay, that's very cool. So I mean, we're talking right now, which is now like a, a movie, <laughs> the movie club. Yeah, <laughs> welcome to the movie club. Um, but it's because uh, you know we're sitting here and uh, we. I don't know if actually you know, okay. So let's here. Here's what's happening right now. We were supposed to have an interview. Uh, mm -hmm. But this person yeah. hasn't shown up, and I don't know if it was a confusion with time or right. what. But yeah, so here we are. So here we are. <laughs> this is what happens. We're, yeah, you we're can... waiting, waiting for a guest to show up, and uh, now you get this. Right, you get uh, this instead. Oh, our guest showed up. Oh, you know, I was gonna get into this article on Infowars.com called Sexodus. Um, oh, yeah, why yeah, are young yeah. men giving up on women? Yeah, just because we talked about Exodus and Sexodus is like the most hilarious word I think I've ever heard. <laughs> um, but our guest is here, so we got to go do an interview. All right, woo! Goodbye, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>